Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thanks to our most recent Patreon supporters. I'm going to do the honours, Bethan, because I've already Ooh. read through them. So you know you can say the names well. <laughs> I know I can say them well, <laughs> yep. I still fuck it up. So we have Zoe Everard, Jackie Margit, Kayla Mills, Pauline Bonney, Chris Jones, Fiona H, Ryan, Helen Hutchinson, James Daniel Waring, Laurie Downey and Stephanie Fortune. Thank you to all of you. I didn't fuck it up. And yeah, thank you for your support. If you would like to join these guys, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. So I thought we should probably just dive right in because it's um it's a biggie this week. So fair warning, this week's case involves serious abuse committed against children. It's not necessarily going to be suitable for all listeners. This week we're going to take a trip down a deep, dark rabbit hole of murder, abuse and institutional corruption on an unimaginable scale. In the summer of 1981, against the backdrop of a historical event that was taking place in London, tragedy struck when a boy was snatched off a busy London residential street in broad daylight. The circumstances surrounding the boy's abduction and subsequent murder painted a grim picture, highlighting once again the dark underbelly that lies concealed beneath the veneer of our bustling capital city. What makes this case unique, however, is the glaringly obvious shortcomings of the police and their apparent willingness to overlook crucial evidence that may well have delivered justice to the victim's family. Was this the result of institutional racism? Or was it an attempt by the elite classes to cover up something much more sinister? Those are two of the questions we'll attempt to answer in today's episode. The wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana, which back then was dubbed the Wedding of the Century, took place on the 29th of July 1981 in the City of London. It was a highly anticipated and globally celebrated event that captured the imagination of millions of people around the world. The wedding ceremony itself was held at St Paul's Cathedral in London. Lady Diana Spencer, a young and beautiful kindergarten teacher, had arrived at the cathedral in a glass coach accompanied by her father, Earl Spencer. The ceremony was attended by around 3,500 guests, including heads of state, members of the royal family of course, and also various celebrities. I wasn't alive for the actual wedding, but I've seen the footage and it was just one of those those things in history that I feel like if you were watching it, you'll never forget. Yeah, it just screams 1980s. It really does. Her well. dress is just yeah. beautiful, but such it really dates the time as well. It really dates it, and her hair, mm-hmm. and her makeup. Yeah, and everyone who's there, and all the costumes, yeah. like, all the outfits that everyone's wearing. Yeah. But yeah, a really historic moment, and I, I wasn't alive at the time either, obviously. Um, oh, but, I thought you were born no. in 1963. <laughs> no, I know. It's shocking. <laughs> I it's shocking. Joking. I look that old, but I'm not. No, that you old. don't. Um, yeah, I, we all, we're all familiar with that footage, with the photographs and with the video footage as well. We're all familiar with it. So, yeah, a real, uh, a real grand affair. And it was filled with traditional and elaborate elements. Lady Diana wore an iconic wedding gown that featured a large taffeta skirt. Taffeta, Mark. <laughs> Shall I say it again? No, just leave that in because that's I'll just cute. leave it in. I remember having to ask what denier was of tights once, which I had to ask <laughs> Oh, you. I remember that, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, a taffeta skirt, whatever the hell that was, puffed sleeves and a 25 foot long train adorned with lace, sequins and thousands of pearls that had all been hand stitched. 
The bride also wore a Spencer family tiara and a veil held in place by a diamond tiara that had been lent to her by Queen Elizabeth II. And I think someone had also given her a pearl necklace that day, <laughs> which I couldn't I know resist. Why you're putting that in, and I hate myself for laughing. <laughs> I just, I've been oh, giggling gosh. to myself about it. Five Bethan, minutes into so. the episode, and it's descended. I know, and they they always say it's never really funny if you laugh at it yourself. So, <laughs> apologies to our audience. Oh dear. Prince Charles, of course the heir to the British throne at the time, arrived at the cathedral in the uniform of a naval commander. The Archbishop of Canterbury officiated the ceremony, which included traditional hymns, readings and prayers, and the couple exchanged vows and rings, and after the ceremony they emerged from the cathedral to the cheers of the massive crowds that gathered outside. Following the wedding ceremony, Prince Charles and the now Princess Diana embarked on a carriage procession through the streets of London, providing an opportunity for the public to catch a glimpse of the newly married couple. And the route was lined with, it was literally hundreds of thousands of well-wishers who had gathered to witness this historic occasion. And it was, yeah, if you see that footage, it's just massive crowds, like, I don't know if we've seen anything since then. Um, Perhaps Diana's funeral, I guess, sadly, uh, 16 years later. The wedding reception took place at Buckingham Palace and was hosted by Queen Elizabeth II. The couple appeared on the balcony of the palace and shared a public kiss, which became an iconic moment captured by photographers, and the celebrations continued into the evening with a formal dinner and dancing. Maybe even another pearl necklace at that point. I'm not even going to laugh at that one, Mark. No, don't You're being naughty now. (laughs) The wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana was a major global media event, with an estimated 750 million people watching the ceremony on TV. It was considered a legendary wedding, symbolising hope and optimism, and it generated widespread public interest in the British monarchy. And I suppose for a younger audience, if anybody has been watching The Crown and is familiar with the series where Charles and Diana get married, you'll see the interest that particularly Lady Diana, as she was known at the time, generated in the royal family. It really was a renewed sense of purpose for that family and their function in this country, wasn't it? Yeah, she was just almost like someone completely unexpected, a breath of fresh air, all of these sorts of things. Um, and absolutely, she's called the prince, people's princess and she really was. The people just absolutely loved her. And I'm sure I've said before, but I remember when she died, We I remember where I was because we were camping with family and the other mum that we were camping with, she burst into tears and she said that she's, you know, Princess Diana's died. And and I remember saying to my mum and dad, oh, did she know the princess, did she? Because of Mm. how distraught she was. And to my innocent little mind, you know, I was a bit like, well, she must have done to be crying over somebody. But genuinely, the public mourned her because she was just, I mean, just so nice. And She was, yeah. yeah. She was so special and would have and did achieve amazing things, but would have gone on to achieve many more amazing things had her life not been cut so short. But but yeah, we're going, uh, you know, way ahead. So really, I wanted to talk about this because this fairy tale event actually sets the stage for this week's heartbreaking story. For amongst the hundreds of thousands of faces that turned out on the streets that day to observe this grand, spectacular, historical event... There was one little boy who was there and who wouldn't make it home that day. This is going to be an episode that's just going to be so heartbreaking. I'm worried about listening to this and even joining you on this episode, Mark. It sounds like it's going to be it's really, a really, really horrible. It's a really, sad episode. And it touches on a, a, an episode or two that we've 
done before that was also difficult. So the Lost I feel, Boys, yeah, which I was covered about a while to say ago, it has that feel. There are links so, to that as there are well, links. which is interesting. Yeah. Um, Vishal Marotra was born in northern India on the 27th of September in 1972 and emigrated to the UK with his family from Sri Lanka in 1978. His father, Vishamba Marotra, was a wealthy solicitor and his mother, Aruna Marotra, was a successful jeweller. Vishal had a younger sister who was named Mamta. Not long after the family landed in the UK, Vishamba and Aruna separated, and Aruna decided to move back to India in order to manage her jewellery business in Bombay, leaving her heartbroken husband and two young children behind forever. The family remained in the UK and lived in Putney, an affluent area of South London. With Aruna now out of the picture, Vishambar struggled to look after the children alone, and so he employed a young foreign living nanny named Joanita Cavallo to help the family get by. Vishal was described as bright and independent with an open and friendly personality. Rarely was he seen without his trademark boyish, happy-go-lucky smiling face. He travelled to his school every day on his own and was said to be a remarkable student who took his studies very seriously. But he also had a passion for art, boxing and was a gifted violinist too. On the 29th of July in 1981, the day of the royal wedding, Vishambar took eight-year-old Vishal, six-year-old Mamta and their nanny Joanita into the centre of London via train. They went to Vishambar's workplace, a tall office building in central London, where they were treated to a wonderful view of the royal wedding celebrations below, as well as the much-anticipated wedding procession through the streets that followed. What a great opportunity for him to have that, so that's where he works. I just thought it was such a lovely thing for him to do, to, to take the kids in for that momentous day yeah the kids must have been so excited but you also feel like you're not in the crowd so you can almost relax a little bit more whilst you're viewing what you can see yeah really special memories would have been made that day afterwards the family headed down to fleet street to join the celebrations on the ground before heading back to putney via the train at around 1 p.m when the family arrived in Putney, Vishambar was feeling tired, so he gave his two children some money to go and buy some sweets before heading home alone, leaving them under the care of Joanita, the nanny. Joanita took the two children to a nearby newsagent's, where they spent the next 15 to 20 minutes buying sweets and looking at comic books. Both the children had been complaining about having sore throats, so Joanita thought it best to go to Putney High Street to buy some cough medicine. But Vishal wasn't happy about this. He was bored and restless and quite frankly couldn't be bothered to walk to the high street and instead decided that he'd rather walk home alone. This wasn't unlike Vishal to be fair. He was a fiercely independent child who walked himself to and from school all alone on a near daily basis. Furthermore Putney at that time was an affluent and safe neighbourhood that enjoyed relatively low crime rates. Therefore, Joanita wasn't concerned about his safety and readily agreed to let him walk home alone if that was what he wanted to do. Joanita supervised him across the road safely and watched as he walked off happily in the direction of his house. She then took Manta to Putney High Street to buy that medicine. This would be the last time that eight-year-old Vishal would ever be seen alive. At around 3pm that afternoon, when Joanita and Manta arrived home, they were perplexed to find that Vishal wasn't there. Vishambar was at home sleeping and had simply assumed that Vishal was with them. Vishambar and Joanita were not overly concerned at first, reasoning that Vishal had probably gone out to play with his friends from the estate. It was typical of Vishal to just go and do his own thing. And it's so crazy, isn't it? Because 
you know, you think of the time when this was and he obviously had, you know, walked to school and that sort of thing. He's eight as well, which is, you know, I think nowadays, even nowadays, you'd probably allow an eight year old to do some things on there. I feel like we're a lot more um, strict with, with children now, but at eight, they're pretty pretty sensible and they know their way around you know they're not going to get lost necessarily um it, yeah I feel really awful because they they kind of probably weren't that they probably mentioned it and then were like oh he'll be back soon and yeah mm. you would and I, I thought to myself I thought was it is it reasonable to let an eight-year-old walk a short distance home in Putney in London at that time or you know in, in the daytime I don't mean in 1981 is it reasonable now and I was like actually yeah you would let an eight-year-old do that. You probably would see them across the road safely and then off they go on their way. So, yeah, it was a completely reasonable thing to do, particularly 42 years ago when Yeah, it I was, think that also or, makes a big difference, yeah. Yeah, supposed to be a safer time, but very sadly what we're going to go on to here uh, doesn't really prove that to be the case. No, we, we kind of, at the time, I think people just weren't as aware of the dangers and what was going on behind the scenes whereas nowadays we're so much more aware because we have social media and we have more access to information but yeah you it wasn't necessarily but then this was a, an area that felt felt safe because of how affluent it was so you can understand it definitely yeah I completely understand it so yeah this is an hour and 20 minutes since Fischau was heading in the direction of home he's not at home they are just assuming he's out playing with friends so it's only an hour and 20 minutes in they're not overly concerned so Joanita put Manta down for an afternoon nap before going to her room to have a nap herself a lot of napping happening at this house I'm jealous I'm jealous yeah when Joanita woke up again about an hour and a half later, Vishal was still nowhere to be found. So this is nearly three hours since he was last seen. As her sleepy haze faded away, a sense of dread crept through her body. She couldn't quite explain it, but she suddenly felt that something was very seriously wrong now. Joanita told Vishambar that Vishal was still not home and he too felt concerned about the situation. So he and Joanita decided to take a walk around the neighbourhood and to knock on some doors to ask if anyone who lived close by had seen Vishal, but very sadly no one had seen him all day. Vishambar also called around several of Vishal's close friends and classmates, but they too hadn't seen or heard from him. By 7pm, both Vishambar and Joanita were now frantic with worry and the decision was made to contact the Metropolitan Police in order to report Vishal as a missing person. So this is five hours and 20 minutes since he was last seen now. Due to Vishal's young age, the police were immediately concerned for his welfare and an urgent missing persons investigation was launched. Met police officers immediately began going door-to-door in Putney, asking the residents if they had seen or heard anything strange, especially along the streets that Vishal would have walked between the newsagents where he had last been seen and his home. Joanita told the officers that when she last saw Vishal, he was wearing a white and navy striped t-shirt, black cord trousers and blue trainers. This description of Vishal was circulated to every patrolling Met police officer throughout the entire city of London. And although this was now the evening on the day of the royal wedding, there would have been still a massive police presence in London at this time because crowds would have still, I guess, been in London. People would have been carrying on with the celebrations. So there were a lot of police in London at this time. And that's a huge number of people that have now got the description of Vishal and and will be actively looking for him. A helicopter fitted with thermal cameras was also launched in order to search for Vishal from the air and Met police officers on the ground patrolling the streets kept a close eye for the youngster. 
It's almost um, a good thing that it's happened at such a, a busy, exciting time. But also there'll be a lot of people who aren't from the area, which would be unusual. And I don't know, it's got like positives and negatives for the time frame in which it's happened. Because it would have been crowded as well. There's lots yeah. of people around. So Vishal wouldn't have stood out potentially. And also mm. a lot of people would have just been in their homes celebrating, watching the aftermath of the coverage on TV that have had family rounds. So the, the high street in Putney was probably pretty quiet at that time. So that possibly explains quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Vishamber was joined by volunteer searchers from all over Putney who searched tirelessly late into the night for any clue as to where Vishal had gone. But as the sun rose the next morning, nobody had found so much as a single clue as to Vishal's whereabouts. It was as if the ground had opened up and swallowed him whole. Over the following days, police divers combed the River Thames and searchers began scouring nearby scrub and woodland. Investigators even checked the airport, hoping that perhaps Vishal had attempted to board a plane to India to go and be with his mother. However, the police found no evidence that this had happened. And of course, it was a long shot because an eight-year-old boy trying to get on such a long-haul flight all alone would have no doubt raised a few eyebrows. But it was worth checking. But yeah, of course, nobody at the airport had seen anything strange that day. It was worth checking, I suppose, because he might have come into the airport and looked about how do I do this and somebody may have remembered something. This is like when Mm. if I've lost my keys and then you're getting desperate and you're like, right, I'll look inside the toilet or... You look somewhere stupid, yeah, yeah. when they definitely would never have been there, yeah. But you still have to do it. The police turned to the media for help. They issued a recent picture of Vishal, which was published in every major newspaper in the UK and broadcast on TV too. The public was urged to keep their eyes open. Investigators also probed the theory that Vishal may have been abducted by a racist gang, of which there were many in London in 1981. However, this line of inquiry also turned up no leads. Now, as we probably all know, when a child goes missing, the first 48 hours are considered to be crucial. Statistically, if the child is not found within this time frame, the odds of them being seen alive again drop by half. After 72 hours, the odds drop to nearly zero. Isn't that a depressing statistic? Oh, it's such a horrible statistic to hear, but it makes sense. But it's just, yeah, that's not nice, is it? No. A week came and went and there was still no sign of Vishal. And the more time that elapsed with no results, the more police's hopes of finding him alive began to fade away. Nevertheless, they kept working tirelessly to find him, continuously ramping up their efforts and expanding the search area. However, after a month, Vishambar and the police were forced to face up to the grim reality. Vishal was gone. Vishambar initially refused to believe that his son was dead, and he desperately tried to remain optimistic that he would see his little boy again one day. However, seven months later, that last shred of hope was cruelly snatched away from him. On the 25th of February in 1982, two men were out shooting pigeons in Petersfield, a rural market town in East Hampshire. As they trudged through the mud in an open field, one of them noticed something strange protruding from the earth. On closer inspection, the man was horrified to realise that he was staring at a human skull. As the man moved more of the earth out of the way, he discovered rib bones and a vertebra. The incomplete skeleton was small and had clearly once belonged to a child. 
Can you imagine coming across that? No. Oh, because gosh. Because it, it would just, an eight-year-old oh. boy, it would be so obvious so, so quickly tiny. that this is a child. Yeah. And I think to discover a human skeleton, a hum- human remains is difficult to discover, I'm sure, anyway, but to know straight away that it's a child must be so traumatic. Local police attended the scene. On closer examination, it appeared as though the child had been buried in a shallow grave some months prior, but the body had then possibly been dug up and eaten by foxes scavenging for food. There were no clothes present, and forensic investigators couldn't find any traces of blood for a forensic analysis. The bones of the skeleton were taken to London for a forensic investigation. Initially, police believed that the body had been buried around the 29th of July in 1981, the very day that Vishal had gone missing. Dental records confirmed the police and Vishambar's worst fears. The bones were confirmed to be the remains of Vishal Marotra. At the time of his death, he was just eight years old. His exact cause of death, however, could not be determined. Although foul play was the most likely conclusion, this could not be definitively proven and thus the coroner was forced to record an open verdict, which is just mind-bendingly frustrating. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because how has an eight-year-old boy made his way to East Hampshire and met his death in a fucking field? You know, it's obviously foul play, but they just couldn't definitively prove that. They couldn't prove a cause of death because it had been seven months. Nevertheless, the subsequent investigation into Vishal's death worked under the assumption that the boy had been kidnapped and murdered. The police made fresh appeals for information via the media and put out images of Vishal, hoping that someone may have seen him on the day that he went missing. Because after all, this was a momentous day. It was a kind of day where everybody would have been able to reflect back and know where they were at that time. So there was real hope that somebody would have seen something and would come forward. And that's what happened. Numerous individuals did come forward to provide the police with mostly, it has to be said, shaky and fruitless leads. Since the day that Vishal has been reported missing, the police interviewed upwards of a thousand people of interest, but none of them got them any closer to the truth. The location where Vishal's body was found was thought by detectives to be quite significant and they began theorising that it was not simply a random spot in which to dump a body, but rather that his killer had knowledge of the Petersfield area. Later, a witness came forward to report seeing an Asian-looking woman sitting in her car in a lay-by right next to the field the day after Vishal had gone missing. Even though the identity of the woman was never determined, this detail will be important later in this story. Okay, so this was the day after he'd gone missing. The day after he'd gone missing, someone has seen, uh, yeah, an Indian-looking woman sat in a car next to that field. One key witness came forward and reported seeing a boy who matched Vishal's description eating sweets next to a bridge not far from Putney. Her description of the boy was so spot on that the police believed that the sighting was genuine and that this woman may have been the last person to see Vishal alive. Sadly, however, they were not able to determine where Vishal may have gone next or with whom. The police were soon running out of leads and the trail was on the verge of going completely cold at this point. Vishal's broken-hearted father was struggling to come to terms with the loss of his son but held out hope that he could at least get justice for him. However, with each passing day that came and went with no new leads, hope was now fading fast. But then, completely out of the blue, something interesting happened. 
Since the discovery of Vishal's body, Vishambar had become a broken man who would pass the time by pacing around his house, replaying the events in his mind and mentally torturing himself for the horrible fate that had befallen his son. One afternoon as Vishambar sat grieving at home, the phone rang. Vishambar expected it to be the police calling to tell him that there were no new leads as usual. However, when he answered, he was surprised to hear an unfamiliar voice on the other end. It was an unidentified male who explained that he was a sex worker who had information about a dangerous VIP paedophile ring that was operating in London at the time. Oh my god, that's awful. Like, what Can you imagine phone getting that call phone call? Oh yeah. god. And it sounded legitimate. Yeah. The man went on to claim that the gang had many members. Some of them were high-ranking policemen judges, politicians, and even some TV celebrities and famous British pop stars. We Um, can imagine who some of these people, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, so we'll we'll get on to Elm Guesthouse shortly and talk about that. Uh, So the caller tearfully explained to Vishambar that his son Vishal had been kidnapped and taken to the Elm Guesthouse, which was a discreet Edwardian building on an unassuming residential street less than a mile from Vishambar's home in Putney. Once there, Vishal had been drugged, gang-raped and murdered by various members of the gang. The caller then pleaded with Vishambar to take him seriously, claiming that he had already tried to report what he knew to the police, but had been repeatedly dismissed and ignored. Vishambar was able to record the call, and he eagerly handed a copy over to Scotland Yard. However, detectives who listened to the recording were quick to dismiss it as a hoax. They urged Vishambar to forget about this incident, and it was never followed up on. Vishambar was infuriated by the police's nonchalant attitude to what he felt was a rock-sodded lead. However, the police would not be swayed. Before long, the trail went completely cold once again. Speaking later to the media, Vishambar said, At that time I trusted the police, but when nothing happened I became confused and concerned. Now it is clear to me that there has been a huge cover-up. There is no doubt in my mind. Then, about a month after Vishal's body had been found, a woman named Jill Exelby came forward to report something promising. On the day of the royal wedding, Jill had been travelling on the district line on the London Underground to go and visit her daughter in hospital. As she sat on the train, she noticed a small Asian boy, about eight years old, who closely matched Vishal's description. Jill's memory of the clothes he was wearing was felt by the police to be accurate enough for her to be taken seriously. Jill went on to explain how she had thought it odd that such a young child would be travelling on the tube all alone. Furthermore, she had also noticed an older man sitting several seats away from the boy, who appeared to be watching him closely, clearly very interested in him. Jill later explained how the entire situation just felt strange, but as the boy did not seem distressed or panicky, she decided to leave it, a decision that would go on to haunt her for the rest of her life. It's so hard, isn't it, though? Because even if your gut tells you something's wrong, you're on the way to the hospital, you've got your own day, you may have got it wrong. Like, there's loads of reasons why you wouldn't. And what are you going to do? Go over to a random stranger and say, are you looking at that boy funny? Like, it's it's so hard to... Uh, of course, that's going to haunt her for the rest of her life. And I feel really awful for her that she probably thinks of this so frequently. But, you know, what what was she going to do? Yeah, I think we're just so conditioned, aren't we, to react in in certain ways that don't cause disruption or alarm or that aren't intrusive or perceived to be rude. So, yeah, we can't help ourselves but just 
try and rationalise what we're seeing in front of us and calm ourselves down and not get involved in it unless it's really serious and we can see something very obvious that, that we know we would intervene in. So yeah, I don't I don't blame her at all, but I know that she does blame herself and that's that's terrible that she has to live with that. Days later, when Jill saw Vishal's image in the local newspaper, she instantly recognised him as the boy she had seen on the train. Her first action when she had this realisation was to pick up the phone and report what she'd seen to the police. The operator told her that police officers would be dispatched to a house later that day to take a statement. However, they never arrived and Jill was never contacted again. This revelation was shocking enough, but Jill had a lot more information to give. And this is where it gets really sinister. A few weeks after being ignored by police in relation to seeing Vishal riding the tube alone, Jill read an unrelated article in the newspaper about the so-called Dirty Dozen, a horrifically evil British paedophile ring that was spearheaded by the notorious serial killer Sidney Cook. Sidney Cook was a convicted child molester and suspected serial killer serving two life sentences. He was the leader of a paedophile ring known as the Dirty Dozen that was suspected of raping and murdering up to 20 young boys in the 1970s and 1980s. The Dirty Dozen's modus operandi was simple but unspeakably evil. They would abduct young and unaccompanied boys right from the street in broad daylight and then take them to a secret location. There the victim would be drugged, brutally gang-raped by members of the gang over several hours and then cruelly murdered and disposed of. Cook is suspected by police of killing at least three boys alongside his gang. He was named by gang member Leslie Bailey as the killer of Mark Tildesley in 1984 when Bailey confessed to that murder and he's also suspected to have been involved in the murder of six-year-old Barry Lewis which Bailey was also convicted of and in November 1985 a group led by Cook did gang rape a 14-year-old boy named Jason Swift in what the media described grotesquely as a homosexual orgy. Jason's body was later found in a shallow grave by a dog walker. An investigation by the Met Police led to the arrest of Sidney Cook and he was jailed for life. Those are names that like, we just will never forget. The, the mm. names just... God, that episode was horrendous. And I think, yeah, if people haven't listened to that and they feel able to, that was such a well-written episode that you presented for us about what happened to those boys. But only if you're able to go listen. Yeah, so that that was called The Lost Boys. I want to say maybe 2020 uh, that was out. But yeah, you know, very difficult listen, but an important episode, I think. The article that Jill had come across featured images of certain individuals who had been handed lengthy jail sentences for horrific crimes that related heavily to their involvement with the Dirty Dozen group. One of the members featured in the article was convicted paedophile Leslie Bailey, Once again, as soon as this woman saw Leslie Bailey's picture, she froze. A sudden realisation came over her that made her feel physically sick. This was the same man who had been creepily watching over Vishal that day on the train. Oh no. What an awful realisation. And you know, don't you, when you see a photo of somebody, you know that's them. You just know because it's imprinted in your brain. So she would have known, she would have known that it was Vishal when she saw his picture in the paper and she would have known that this was Leslie Bailey and she would have then put two and two together and absolutely got the answer, which was her fear all along that there was something sinister happening here. So once again, Jill picked up that phone and reported what she'd seen to the police. Once again, they promised to send officers over to take a statement and once again they never arrived. Leslie Bailey was murdered in his prison cell by a fellow prisoner in 1993. 
and nobody was ever able to definitively ascertain his movements on the day Vishal went missing. It was an almost unbearable possibility to consider, but it now seemed as though Vishal Marotra may have been another one of the Dirty Dozen's tragic victims. There were also strong suggestions that a VIP paedophile ring, possibly comprised of several members of the UK's elite classes, could also be to blame for Vishal's murder. Was it possible that the two groups were either one and the same, or at least working in collaboration with one another? We may never know the answer to that question, because this line of inquiry was, at that time, never explored. In fact, astonishingly little of the information that surfaced in the wake of Vishal's murder was ever thoroughly investigated. As a result, Vishal's murder remains unsolved to this very day. However, the story doesn't end there. In June 1982, almost a year after Vishal's murder, the Elm guest house was raided by police after a 10-year-old boy came forward to report that he'd been sexually abused on the premises by two high-ranking police officers. During the raid, damning evidence was seized, including a logbook that contained an extensive list of names of those who were regular patrons of the property. The records also revealed that on the night of July the 21st in 1981, the same day that Vishal had vanished, the lodge had hosted a king's and queen's party in celebration of the royal wedding. Exactly what this party entailed is unknown because the exact details have never been publicly released, but we do know that illegal sexual activity took place that night. As far as we're aware, the police did not find any physical evidence that Vishal had been present at the Elm Guest House, but equally it couldn't be disproved. And of course they didn't if there were police officers well, exactly. who were there. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And, you know, people that were probably high up in the CPS and other elements of the judiciary. So, yeah, it was never going to be proven. A masseur who worked on the premises, then aged 17, very disturbing. I mean, I say worked, I'm using that term lightly, they would have been trafficked in some kind of way, um, later claimed that the same two police officers had sex with him in the guest house before the raid, and that he was violently intimidated by them not to speak the truth about what he knew. Following the raid, the owners of the Elm guest house, an Asian couple named Haroon and Carol Kasia, were taken into custody. In April 1983, they were convicted of running a disorderly house. They were each sentenced to nine months imprisonment, suspended for two years and fined £1,000. None of the guests at the house were convicted of any offence and no politician or VIP was ever identified as having been involved. But think about that for a moment, because a small boy is raped by two high-ranking police officers and evidence is found to support that claim, a witness has come forward, and absolutely no one is charged for the rape itself, but the two people who facilitated the crime were handed a pathetically lenient penalty. Because, you know, Haroon and Carol Casilla, who were running the Elm Guest House, and, you know, running, they knew what was happening there. They could only really be convicted of running a disorderly house for which they received a suspended sentence. They weren't charged with being at the helm of a VIP paedophile ring, which is essentially what they were doing. Whether they were actively involved or not, they were facilitating it on their premises. In the end, not a single person went to prison for what had taken place. Several of the detectives who had worked the Vishal Marotra investigation briefly explored the possibility that Ms. Kassia could have been the same Asian-looking female that had been seen parked up next to the field where Vishal's body was found. 
That line of inquiry was abruptly abandoned with no explanation being given and Ms Cassir's movements that day had never been determined and as fate would have it never will be because in June 1990 Carol Cassir was found dead in her bed by another occupant of the flat that she was living in. Um, But I think that was her. I think that was her in that car next to the field where Vishal's body was discovered and she was spotted there. I'm sure that would have been her the day after he'd vanished. And that's what they would have done. They would have brutally raped him over the course of that day. And then probably the next day or in the early hours of that morning, they would have disposed of the body. And perhaps Carol drove two men, maybe, who who disposed of Vishal's body in a field, in a shallow Or at least was doing like some sort of recce of where or something. Perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. So when Carol Cassier was found dead, she had numerous injection marks and a number of insulin vials were found near her bedside. However, her husband and co-conspirator, Haroon Cassia, claimed that she had been murdered and that the crime had been covered up. And I think that's absolutely possible, isn't it? And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail in a moment. But yeah, I could see that happening. At the inquest into Carol's death, which was ruled a suicide, Mr Chris Fay, an employee of the National Association of Young People in Care, alleged that he had spoken to Carol Cassia with his colleague Mary Moss just a few days before she'd died. So Carol Cassia agreed to cooperate and uncover exactly what was happening within her guest house, and she had apparently handed over a list of VIP guests that had attended Elm Guest House for the purpose of abusing underage boys. Carol Cassia revealed that the young victims were trafficked from Grafton Close Children's Home by a high-ranking London social worker, then sent to the guest house to be abused by the VIPs on the list in the guest house. She agreed to confess to her own crimes and tell the whole truth, but just days later, after she had essentially blown the whistle on the horrific goings-on in Elm Guest House, implicating not only herself but potentially several high-ranking members of the UK elite classes. She was oh so conveniently found dead. So it is just too convenient for my liking. I think if Chris Fay and Mary Moss are telling the truth, which I have no doubt that they are, then that that has got to be what happened. Carol has got to have been whacked to stop her blowing the whistle fully. The list of Elm attendees that was handed over to Chris Fay days before Carol's death, which featured a bishop, several politicians and a very well-known pop star, was reviewed briefly by the police but ultimately thrown out after being deemed inadmissible. Besides, the author of the list was suddenly dead and thus unable to give evidence in court, so it kind of lost its gravitas. Undeterred though, Chris Fay continued to dig deeper into the Elm Guest House's murky past and soon discovered that the sordid property had been linked to several other mysterious disappearances. One of them was that of 15-year-old Martin Allen, a British teenager who mysteriously disappeared on the 5th of November in 1979. He was last seen travelling home from school on the London Underground by a man who claims he saw Martin with a man who appeared to be holding him by the shoulders. The boy appeared distressed and both parties appeared to be nervous as they got onto the train. The witness saw the man prod the boy in the back and overheard him telling the boy not to try to run away when the pair left the train at Earl's Court Station. The identity of the man was never disclosed and Martin's fate remains a mystery to this day. However, Martin's brother, Geoffrey, later came forward to report that in the early stages of the police investigation, the detective in charge had told the Allen family that there were high-up people involved and that they should stop talking and, quote, not take it any further because someone will get hurt. So again, we only have Geoffrey's 
words for that. But I, again, I have no reason to disbelieve that. And yeah, it was a warning that people will get hurt. There's high up people involved in this. It needs to just be left. That's so easy to say when it's not your child. That is awful. Your, you know, your brother or your son. Yeah, it's just an impossible task. And they're just an ordinary family that were desperately hunting for answers and were getting nowhere because of possibly police corruption, high up people in the police force that were putting a block on any investigation because they were involved or they were protecting people that they knew to be involved. Not long after this, the Allen family were told that all of the evidence and case files that had been collected in their son's disappearance had unfortunately been destroyed in a freak flood at Kensington Police Station. How convenient. Yeah. As soon as these mysterious and frustrating details came to light, the media began to speculate heavily on the circulating rumours of a VIP paedophile ring operating out of the Elm Guest House, a rumour that the Met Police always seemed determined to ignore. In April 2015, it was announced by the Met Police that some of the lost evidence had been miraculously rediscovered. In May 2016, a special task force was assembled specifically to reinvestigate Martin Allen's case and soon established clear similarities between Martin's case and Vishal's case. Police questioned the notorious paedophile gang leader Sidney Cook in his prison cell. Indeed, the disappearances of both Vishal Marotra and Martin Allen were in keeping with the modus operandi of Cook's paedophile gang. Furthermore, intelligence had been received via an informant in prison that several incarcerated members of the Dirty Dozen gang had openly bragged to fellow prisoners that they had killed an Asian boy, and investigators were keen to establish whether this could have been Vishal. However, to date, no evidence has been found to reveal the truth about what happened to either child, and both cases remain unsolved. Sidney Cook wouldn't talk, so they did interview him, as I said, in his cell, but he wouldn't talk, and I think he's still alive. He's 95 and he's still in prison, rotting in his cell. Given all the factors that have been outlined above, any sane person may be scratching their head at this point, wondering just how on earth the brutal murder of Vishal Marotra has never been solved, even after four decades of so-called investigation and an abundance of circumstantial evidence at hand. Now, there are two possible answers to this question. Neither of them instills confidence in the UK justice system or in society at large. Vishambar Marotra is certain that had Vishal been a white boy, his murderer would have been found long ago. Indeed, at this stage in the game, it's clear that not all missing child cases are created equal. Some are treated with a lot more urgency and diligence, whereas others are merely swept under the rug the moment the media interest evaporates. In an interview with the BBC in 2021, he said, I have no doubt that there is racism here, otherwise why would they try always to brush it under the carpet? When it comes to white children, they'll fly to Portugal, Germany, everywhere. And years have gone by and they will still investigate and keep looking. And money doesn't seem to be a problem. But for my son, I can't see that they've done anything constructive by way of investigation at all. And it's that argument that we've had time and again, haven't we, Bethan, on this show, on our Patreon-exclusive podcast, Crime Wave, of the victim profile and victim type determining the level of interest in the media, but also the amount of resources that are dedicated to an investigation. Maddie McCann is that classic example, isn't it? You know, an eight-figure sum has been spent on investigating what happened to her, 
And then we have other children who don't fit that profile go missing every day and their disappearance remains unsolved and no money's thrown at it and nobody talks about it. Yeah, it just makes you so angry, doesn't it, to know that there's this disparity between um, different victims and different victim types and the families. And however, what I would say is I think... Um, when we looked at some of the other children, when we looked at the Lost Boys episode, I just don't feel like this is racism. This is, in my opinion, this this has to be linked to at least, you know, possibly not Sydney Cook's gang, possibly something else. But this surely is linked, especially the fact that Jill saw him on a train being watched by someone who was then actually convicted it surely is not just that the police didn't investigate because he's asian i'm i'm convinced i mean that happens that definitely of course it does absolutely does but i don't i agree with you Beth, and i don't think that necessarily is what's at play here i think this is maybe corruption at quite a high level I actually think that the Dirty Dozen, so Sydney Cook's gang, was part of this VIP pedophile ring. I think they were one and the same, or certainly working in collaboration with each other. And yeah, I think they were a big, well-known gang. I think Jimmy Savile was a part of it, or certainly would turn up at certain events. And there were rumours that he'd been involved. You know, we, I think we may have talked about him in the Lost Boys episode, maybe in Jason's Rape and Murder. Um so, um, you know, people had put him there. People have put Jimmy Savile at various locations where this kind of abuse was happening by this specific gang. So I think it was just, yeah, a massive ring that was operating in central London and the surrounding area and attracted well-known people and important people. And I suppose because they were well-known and important, they all knew they had to keep each other's secrets. So... Yeah, I I think that's what was at play here. So that is the second theory. And yeah, I think that's the most terrifying theory and the most credible. The existence of a VIP pedophile ring made up of members of the UK's elite. Of the names on the list of attendees at Elm Guest House that was provided by Carol Cassier shortly before her death, at least three of them were later convicted of multiple unrelated sex offences against children. So, you know, there's a hundred odd names on there and, you know, we know for a fact at least three of them have been proven to be paedophiles and potentially many others and lots of rumours about lots of others uh, prevail. Whatever the case, the truth of what really happened to Vishal Marotra may never be known. In May 2023, Sussex Police announced that they would be re-examining the case Sidney Cook is now, correct, I stand corrected, a 96-year-old man living out his final days in his prison cell and possibly knows what happened to Vishal. Vishal Marotra, along with countless others, hope that he will do at least one decent thing with his abhorrent life before it ends and tell the truth about what he really knows. Mm, but will Only he? time will tell, but time is quickly running out. And yeah, this makes I mean, me so who cross. Who knows? He might when- do. Like, yeah, what if he doesn't? And then he, it all dies, you know, his secrets die with him. And I think that that's, I've said before, that's one of the things with Jimmy Savile that makes me so upset and angry and cross and peeved. um, Yeah, I mean, my God. You know, those secrets died with him. Yeah, it just pisses me off. And again, with him. And also with with Savile, which we did do, we have covered Savile because we do get lots of people asking us to cover Savile. 
We did cover him in a quite a detailed episode. It was a Patreon bonus episode that we did. And it was almost a two-parter because I think I might have covered it, Bethan, and then you came along and we had a discussion around it. Um, but with Savile, yeah, we'll never know the true extent of his crimes. We can guess at it and we can make educated guesses. But, for example, did he engage in necrophilia at the hospitals in which he had complete bloody access that's a question that I always uh, have, and that's unanswered. But I think, you know, we have a truly, truly sick individual there, possibly one of the most sick individuals in modern history in terms of what he did. And we that's only, you know, the half of it that we know. Um, thank you for listening. Before we go, I did want to tell you about a fascinating documentary. This isn't a paid sponsor uh, read or anything like that. It's just, um, I just, the, the production company got in touch and I really wanted to let you guys know about it because this is fascinating. It kind of ticks a lot of boxes in terms of what, what we're all interested in. So yeah, we just wanted the opportunity to take a minute of your time to tell you about it. Yeah. So don't go anywhere, guys. You have to stay on the line and listen to the end of this. In 1985, Detective Inspector Gwyn Roberts was sent to a quiet Welsh seaside town to investigate an unusually threatening and vile anonymous letter, leading him to the home of mild-mannered clergyman, the Reverend Emma Owen. What the police found in the unassuming house was shocking. Dozens of pornographic magazines and books on black magic, cannibalism and surgery. But the most vital discovery of all were a series of photographs from which one thing became clear. The Reverend was guilty of abusing and mutilating human bodies awaiting burial. To this day, with no similar offence ever recorded in legal history, it remains one of Britain's most infamous criminal sprees. The Rev, a true crime horror documentary, resurrects this gruesome yet fascinating story with interviews from police officers, psychiatrists and legal experts who shed new light on the Reverend's disturbing actions and mentality. Interwoven are dramatic recreations that delve into Owen's history and unearth questions about his crimes that remain unanswered to this day. The Rev is a dock shed in association with S4C production. The Rev premieres exclusively on the Icon Film channel from the 9th of October, followed by all major UK digital platforms from the 8th of January 2024. Thank you for listening. I did just want to uh, give that give it a shout out. I've been given early access to it, and it is a fascinating documentary. Oh my god, I, I am recommend it, going so. to be watching that. That's, but that sounds absolutely horrendous as well. I feel like that the fact that you described it as a horror, true crime, you know, true crime horror documentary. Um, that sounds kind of exactly. Yeah, I think I might have to give this so a go too, but not at night time. No, possibly not at night time. Certainly not if you're on your own. So that premieres on the 9th of October on the Icon Film Channel, and then on all major UK digital platforms on the 8th of January next year. So uh, do check it out. Thank you for listening. And thank you for uh, listening, support guys. Support on Patreon if you're able to. Uh, head over to Patreon.com/SeeingRedPodcast, and don't forget we've got a range of merch at our website now. So that's SeeingRedPodcast.co.uk. Otherwise, we. We'll see you next week for another episode. We'll see, see you then. then. Bye. Bye.